This morning, the Bible is going to show us that God keeps his promises, and because he keeps his promises, you can be sure that he is wonderfully for his people. Uh, When you look at the scriptures, Jesus is certainly the central story of the Bible to which so many of the other stories are connected and propping up. If you think in your mind of a large blanket that has been knit together by strands of yarn, at the center of that blanket is a design or a pattern, and that's the focal point. But if you were to grab one of those strands of yarn at the very center, you could tug on it and see it pulling at the very front edge of the blanket over here. And if you tugged at another strand of yarn at the center, you might find it pulling at the back end of the blanket over here. The yarn travels from one end of the blanket all the way to the center, and then it continues all the way to the other edge of the blanket. The Bible has been given to us in such a way that it forms a big story of God's salvation. That big story is very clearly seen in the middle of the Bible. That center story is about Jesus. And if we're watching closely, there are themes and connections from Jesus, our Savior, that travel from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the very end of Scripture. These stories, again, are woven together purposefully by God to prop up the story of redemption, the story of salvation. So this week and next week, we're going to study some passages in the Old Testament that are on that thread line leading to Christ. Today we're tugging on a thread at the beginning of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis 12, where we find a man named Abraham. We're told in verse 4 of chapter 12 that Abraham was 75 years old. In later passages, we find out that his wife Sarah is 10 years younger. So when we start this story, we're talking about two people who are already along in life. And God comes to him at the beginning of chapter 12 and makes a promise. I know his name is Abram. I'm going to call him Abraham for the rest of the story. God comes and says to him in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God gives Abraham a promise that has several facets to it. There's the promise that a nation would come from Abraham's line. There's the aspect that his name would be great. And then there's this aspect that by Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, when you think about that word families, when the Bible uses that, It's better to think of that in terms of big clans or big tribes or people groups. Through Abraham, these clans and tribes and people groups would experience a blessing. Now, those promises mean that Abraham would have to have a child. And up to this point in Abraham and Sarah's life, they've had none, no descendants. And you heard their age, they're 75 and 65. In chapter 12, we also see that God is calling Abraham to trust him by faith. He has to move his family from the land of Haran to Canaan, which is about a 700-mile trip. 
To put that into today's terms, that would be like us walking from Grand Haven all the way down to Washington, D.C. So they made the journey away from their family, away from their tribe, to a new land. Well, the months and years came and went for Abraham and Sarah. The promise had been made, but still there was no child that had been born to these two. And neither of them were getting any younger. As we move to chapter 15, we see that Abraham understandably voices his concern to God. Chapter 15, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He says later, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Now it's interesting here that the title for God here, Lord God, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which has the idea of God being a sovereign Lord over all of his creation, including himself and his wife. God is the one who is in absolute charge of them. So when Abraham is appealing to God, he is appealing to God that God is in charge and for some reason a son has not been given to him at this point, but God is sovereign over them and capable of giving them a son. In verse 4, God responds. He says, your very own son shall be your heir. There's the promise again. You will have a son and he will be your heir. And so God brought him outside and said, look. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And so shall your offspring be. So God is coming to Abraham and he's telling him, old man, you will have a child. And you notice what Abraham's response is in verse 6. He says that he believed the Lord. Now if we pause for just a moment in the story, there's something important that we see throughout Abraham's life up to this point. That is his ongoing faith. It wasn't perfect by any means, but he lived by it. What is faith? In general, we might say that faith is belief. It's a synonym. We might say that faith is trust. But the faith that God requires is not a faith that simply believes something to be true. For example, I believe that the sky is made up of atmospheric gases that cause it to be blue during the day. I believe that the earth, hey, by the way, it's blue out there today, right? That's beautiful. I believe that the sky is blue. I believe that the earth is round and not flat. I believe that in Paris or in France, there's an actual city called Paris. However, that kind of faith does not affect my life right now. It does not direct my life away from one thing to another. The kind of faith that God is calling Abraham to live by is the kind of faith that keeps directing his life. And Abraham is an example of faith as we read about in Hebrews 11. Abraham has gone from Haran to Canaan because of his faith in God's word. His faith is directing him. He's a childless man getting ready to pass along his inheritance Wondering, God, am I going to have a son? God comes to him and says, you will have a son. And Abraham believes. The text says he believes, meaning he's living by that promise. What about us? This is a call for us to live by faith. And not just the kind of faith that believes something is true, like the demons believe that God exists. This kind of faith is the kind of faith that calls us 
to believe that something is true and then live by it. So if you're traveling down a road that comes to a great canyon and there are two bridges that cross the canyon, you're going to study each one of those bridges to see which one has been built with the most integrity. But you have to cross the canyon. You study, you look at one, you look at the other, then you choose one and your faith says, this is the path that I'm taking. Your faith leads you down this path and you begin walking. When you have faith in God, as Abraham has faith in God, you choose God. Your life takes on this direction. You are following him. Abraham believed God and he followed him. And God makes these promises to his people and God's people in response lay hold of them in faith, believe them, and live by them. In other words, the promises that are believed and received by faith change our lives. Now the Bible says that because of Abraham's belief or his faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. In verse six, it says, and he believed the Lord in that moment, and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. God gives righteousness to his people on the basis of faith. This is one of those threads that pulls throughout scripture. You see Abraham demonstrating faith and God in response to his faithfulness, his faith in God, God says, okay, I am going to give righteousness to your account. That thread pulls all the way forward to passages like Romans chapter four, where the text says, for what does the scripture say? And Paul, looking at Abraham, says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here's Paul, 2,000 years later, looking back at Abraham and seeing Abraham was the one who believed God and how did God respond? God responded by giving him righteousness. And Paul says, this is how the people of God are to live. They are to live by faith. And when they live by faith, God credits to them righteousness. Faith is what God requires of you. It's not works such as communion or baptism. It's not being nice to people X amount of times in your life. A person receives righteousness, a right standing with God by faith and by faith alone. Another text in Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. Look at the connection between righteousness and faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, and what is this faith in? This faith is in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Christian or non-Christian this morning, the means by which you have a right relationship with God is not by works of the law, 
The Bible says that the means by which we have a right relationship with God is us exercising faith in what God has given to us. What has he given to us? His son, Jesus. And so he says that through faith in Jesus, we believe and God gives us righteousness. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning and you're just wondering, how do I have a right relationship with Jesus? How is righteousness going to be put on my account? Is it through works? The Bible says, no, it's not through works. You look at Abraham, the answer is by faith in what God has said. You look at Paul, it's by faith in what God has said. And what has he said? Believe in Jesus as your Savior. That's it. Now, in order to receive the righteousness of God for your sins, you simply must have faith. Abraham's story continues. In chapter 17, Abraham is still childless, and in verse 1, you see that he's 99 years old. And yet his faith continues forward. Imagine yourself waking up with arthritis, seeing the hair falling out of your head. You know you're not a young man anymore, and you're still holding on to that promise that God has given. You will have a son. God comes to him, and in verse 1, look at how God addresses himself. And note the connection. He's 99 years old, and God says, I am God Almighty. And the term here for God is not Adonai as it was earlier. This term here is El Shaddai. It's fitting that God uses this term for himself in this context because it means Almighty God. And for a man who's 99 years old and a woman who's 89 years old, what do we need at this moment for these two to conceive and have a child? We need the power of God at work in this scene. And it's only by God's power that Sarah's womb will be fertile. Chapter 18, the story continues, verse 10. The Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now think about that. Not just Sarah will be pregnant at this time next year, but 12 months from now, Sarah will have given birth, and you, 99-year-old man, you and Sarah will have a son. There are several events that take place in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to move over those. We come to chapter 21, verse 1. The text says that the Bible, uh, that the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Here's the sovereign almighty, this promise-keeping God, powerfully causing Sarah to be pregnant. In verse 2, we read that Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now this birth is one of those long threads back in Genesis that get tugged on in Jesus' birth, in his story. Just as Abraham and Sarah were having a child and it was miraculous in nature, Jesus' birth is miraculous in nature as well. Instead of an older woman... 89 years old, who's past her childbearing years. Mary was a young woman, biologically capable of having children. Yet, here was the challenge. She had not known a man. 
God the Son would come into her womb in a supernatural way, just as God had made it possible for Sarah to have a child. God would make it possible for Mary to have a child. And this was prophesied some 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, where the Bible says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew picks up on this promise and says that that promise right there is fulfilled in Mary. It was a pregnancy that took place because the almighty sovereign God had promised it would take place and it did. Here's Abraham and Sarah. It's impossible for this to happen, but God made it possible. And you can imagine the joy that both of them had. They had been on a 25-year journey since God had first called them from Haran to Canaan. 25 years waiting for a child to come. Their bodies getting older each month, each year ticking by, yet still holding on to that promise by faith. And now their long-awaited son had come, a son whom they could look at and love, a son who would be the joy of their hearts, a son who would make them laugh, a son whom they would watch become a man, God was fulfilling his promise. Well, this thread continues into chapter 22 with an unthinkable twist, one that we would never expect. The gift has been given. Let's celebrate. But the narrator leads us into chapter 22 where God comes to Abraham and asks him to take the most difficult step yet. In verse 2, God told Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And notice the language that the text is using here, the relational language. Abraham, I want you to take your son, I want you to take your only son, and I want you to go to Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering, not just, you know, like Samuel offered at the temple. I want you to go extremely far, this unthinkable action. I want you to surrender your son to the point of death. And here is Abraham who has lived by faith and has seen God fulfill his promises over and over in his life. Did he live perfectly? No, but he kept holding on to God. And now God is asking him to take this next step. I want you to surrender your son to death. Here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Abraham responds in faith, rising up early the next morning and going on a three-day journey to this land of Moriah. And you have to wonder what is going through Abraham's mind as he walks for three days. God, why? Why in the world would you do this to me? Why would you finally give me a son? Why would you give me this joy that I've been able to hold and watch grow up over these years? Why would you put him into my family only to cruelly rip him away from my arms? Three days of walking. Three days of painful thinking. 
And yet, three days where, by faith, he keeps taking one step after the next, heading to Moriah. Now, the land of Moriah is significant in the Bible. It's only mentioned one other time in the text. But that one time where it's mentioned gives us enough meaning to pull one of those threads all the way through Scripture. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So where is Moriah? Moriah is the mountain that Jerusalem rests upon. Here's where Abraham is marching with his son. Here's where God is sending Abraham and his son to Jerusalem. To that city that would one day be built there. All it is now is an empty barren mountain where Abraham is going to offer his son as a sacrifice. It's to Jerusalem that God would send his son Jesus who would come and be betrayed by his own people and be sacrificed on a cross. Here's Abraham 2,000 years earlier walking to that hill where a more ultimate sacrifice would be given on our behalf. Abraham gets to the base of Mount Moriah. And he leaves his servants at the bottom of the hill. And he takes the wood that they had brought for a burnt offering. And we're told that he places it on Isaac's back. Tells us a little bit about Isaac's age. He's not just a little boy at this point. He's strong enough, robust enough to take wood and place it on his back and hike up a hill. Perhaps he's in his 20s at this point. Some wonder, is this a shadow pointing forward? Is he even 33? The text doesn't tell us, but we know he's robust enough and strong enough where he's taking the wood upon his shoulders and carrying what he will be sacrificed on to the top of the hill. Again, you can see the shadow going forward, the thread going forward to Christ who carried his cross through Jerusalem. At this point in the story, verse 7, we hear Isaac speak. And he says to his dad, my father. And Abraham responds and says, here I am, my son. Isaac says, behold the fire and the wood but where is the burnt or the lamb for the burnt offering? To which Abraham, who knows what God has commanded, says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And soon they went up the mountain. If you go through this section here in chapter 22, um, you're seeing this term son over and over and over again. I counted 12 times. I may have missed one or two. But you're catching the, the relationship. My son, my only son. Abraham gives this answer that God is going to provide for himself the lamb. And there's a lot of curiosity surrounding this response that Abraham gives. Is Abraham taking his son up on the mountain expecting God to actually provide a physical lamb? Or is Abraham continuing to proceed on the promise that his son, his only son, is the lamb? Meaning that his son would indeed be sacrificed. 
Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a little insight, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So perhaps Abraham is at the base of the hill saying, you are the lamb in so many words, Isaac not understanding it. And getting up to the top of the hill and thinking, okay, I've seen El Shaddai, I've seen Adonai do the impossible. I have to slay my son, but in faith, I believe that he's going to raise him from the dead. That day? Or like David, who said, I will see my son someday. I mean, we can't just say that Abraham's going up and saying, yeah, God, you got this. Um, Wink, wink, I'm taking my son up there, but not really planning to sacrifice him because you've got a ram caught in the thicket up there. That's not the idea. If we read it that way, we're missing Abraham's faith of actually proceeding in obedience to the Lord. Verse 9, the text says that they continue up the mountain. And after Abraham had built an altar, he binds his son and lays him on the altar. He's going forward with what God had told him. And in verse 10, the Bible says that Abraham reaches out and he takes the knife to do what? To slaughter his son. It's the eighth time that we've seen the term son. And here is Abraham saying, God, this is what you have given to me. And proceeding in faith, I have to follow you. He wants us to think about Abraham's faithfulness. And so with the knife in his hand, ready to proceed, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. Verses 12 and 13. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. There's a lesson that we learn here. It's simple, and it's this. God is able to provide. God is able to provide. When Abraham and Sarah left Haran, God was able to provide and bring them to Canaan. I didn't tell you about what they met when they first landed in Canaan. There was a famine. It forced them out of Canaan down to Egypt in search of food. When the food dried up in Canaan, God was able to provide. When Abraham and Sarah were without children, God was able to provide. And when Abraham walked by faith and obeyed God in bringing Isaac up to the Mount of Moriah, God was able to provide. The story here is pointing us to the greatness of God. 
God is always able to meet you and I where we are and be strong enough for you and provide for you. This is the God who provides. And as you tug on that thread that goes all the way back to Genesis, we're seeing that there are needs that we have that are far greater than what we can meet. Our greatest need needs to be provided for us. We've sinned against Almighty God and we have to be brought into a relationship with him. We can't do it on our own. And here is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for us in his son Jesus. Now what does God require? We must have faith. We must have faith in this almighty God. So when Abraham left Haran, he had to trust God. When he went down to Egypt, he had to trust God. When he heard the promise, he had to trust God. When he bound Isaac and placed him on the altar and grabbed the knife, in that moment, he had to trust God. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know how he would go back down the mountain, travel three days and tell Sarah what would happen. He didn't know everything. And that's where faith enters the story. We don't walk by faith. We don't, I mean, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And here's this promise that God is able to provide. You must trust him this morning. First, and foremost, we're looking at trusting God for our salvation. But there are a number of other things going on in your lives, brothers and sisters, where you don't know what's going to take place next. Here is Jehovah Jireh, one step at a time. He's just calling you to walk in faith one step at a time. God will provide because he is able. Now, with that thought in mind, there's a final section and a second lesson. Final section that tugs on the thread all the way to Christ. Abraham has walked by faith. And in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's a blessing here and there's three facets to this blessing. First, there's the blessing that Abraham would have a family tree that would be as many as the stars in the heaven. Try to count. I don't know if any of you walked outside early this morning. It was a clear morning Clear sky, the stars were bright. If you were to go down into the bottom of the Grand Canyon or out to some place where there's no other ambient light and you look up, there's stars all over the sky. And as you look at these pictures that have been given to us by these Hubble telescopes, you just see stars upon stars, billions and billions of them that continue on. This is Abraham's promise you're going to have descendants, as many as the stars of the sky. And yet, out of that family, there is one star that shines brightly. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. It's through Abraham's line that David would come. 
And it's through David's line that Jesus, the bright and morning star, would come. And here is God saying to Abraham, in response to your faith, let me give you a blessing. And in that blessing, we've received the bright and morning star, Jesus. Second, his offspring would possess the gate of his enemies, meaning that his family tree would ultimately be victorious. This has the idea of conquering an enemy by walking into their territory, into their city, destroying that enemy, and rendering them powerless. You sit now at their gates. They don't sit at their gates. And God says that through Abraham, his family tree would be victorious. The ultimate victory would come through Abraham's line. And we see this coming through Christ, who would defeat Satan and death. They would be rendered powerless. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the Bible says that Christ became flesh in order that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ defeated sin and eternal death. It's like he marches into the city of death that is held by Satan and he stakes his claim and he says, I own it now. This is a promise for us. Christ defeated it and those who are in his family share in the bounty of his victory. And so brothers and sisters, there's all kinds of people experiencing death right now. All of us will face death right now. But if you are in the family of Christ, you have this promise that you will have eternal life. There's a third aspect, and that is through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the last tug on the thread from Abraham to Christ. All the nations, meaning all the different kinds of people, all different pockets of people, tribes and clans all over the world, would experience a blessing that would come through Abraham. And how would that happen? Well, we continue to follow the thread. Galatians chapter 3. Paul picks up on this and says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And how would it happen? so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. This is for us today. Back in Genesis 22, God makes a promise. There's going to be a blessing to the Gentiles, and here we are, non-Jews, lily-white, winter-skinned West Michiganders here this morning, who are recipients of this blessing all the way back in Abraham's day. We're receiving the blessing through Christ. Again, it points us to God that 4,000 years ago, God made a covenant. He made a promise and he kept it, which leads us to lesson number two. It's simply this. God is faithful to his promises. God is able to provide. Lesson number two, God is faithful to his promises. And this is what we're celebrating at Christmas. We're celebrating the faithfulness of God to us. His promise that people would receive a blessing and this blessing has come to us in Christ who lived a sinless life. 
He was sacrificed on the cross for your sins, and his life is offered as a gift to you that can only be received by faith. And now you have eternal life. The meaning of Christmas is that God is a promise-keeping God to you. He's fulfilled this promise by bringing Jesus into the world for you. And if you believe in Jesus as your Savior now, God is your God, Christian. God is your God. You have God. And the longer that you think about that truth, that the creator of all of these stars, the creator of Abraham and Sarah, the creator who makes promises and keeps promises, he is your God. He has become your God. And since he is your God, he is for you. With all of his ability to provide, he's for you. And with all of his promises that have been made to you, he is for you. He's making promises and keeping those promises for you. God is wonderfully and powerfully for his people. And we know that because he gave his only son for us. So Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All of the promises that God has made find their fulfillment in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And this is a wonderful promise that will carry you with joy through Christmas that God is for his people. You're going into Christmas with some questions unanswered. How's it going to go with this relationship? How's it going to go with that relationship? Some of you are going into Christmas with high expectations. Some of you are going to wonder whether or not your family will enjoy your hospitality. Some of you are going into this season, the last chapter of 2021, filled with curiosity as to what's going to take place in the next year. And you come back to, well, what is the meaning of Christmas? Like, what do we learn from Christmas? Well, one thing that we learn is God made a promise 4,000 years ago and has fulfilled it in your life as an individual. He is for you. And so we do... What we do now is we step back and we see, God, you are able. And now I'm going to live by faith in your promises. We walk away from this anticipation of Christmas all the way back in Genesis, saying, okay, God, I want to live by faith that you are able and that you are going to continue to be faithful to your promises in my life. Let's pray.